Hey everyone, it's Caleb. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and for st- or for spending part of your day with me today. My guest is David Burkus, who has been on the podcast before, and uh, and we have a great conversation about a new book that he recently released. Uh, actually, it's an audiobook form, and we talk with him about. Or actually, I talk with him about. Uh, why why he decided to go the audiobook route instead of traditional publishing. His new audiobook is called Pick a Fight, and we talk with him about that as well. Now, I want to remind you that the music that you're listening to is brought to you by my good friend, Sam Massey. Uh, and if you have any audio or video needs right now, he is the person to contact and to look into possibly working with on any of that stuff. Sam is a great guy, and his work is always excellent as well. Now, I do want to give you a heads up that uh, just as you've been seeing on the podcast feed, we've been doing some or I've been doing some different podcast series, one being the Everyday Hope and just kind of talking with people about what life looks like right now during the time of the coronavirus and then also continuing to give you recommendations for for stuff to do, some of the stuff that I'm learning from as well, whether that be books or movies or video games or podcasts or music or literally just just everything. And I want to, I'm going to be starting a new series that's a little bit more in depth in that. And we'll be looking at some of the, some of the books that have made a profound impact on me. Some of the key takeaways that have stood out to me, how they've impacted me and how I continue to live them out today. And so be looking out for those over the next, uh, coming over the next couple of weeks as well. Now, as I mentioned today, I'm talking with David Burkus about his book, Pick a Fight. And here is our conversation. David, super excited to have you back on the podcast to talk about uh, some new content and your new book that's recently come out. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and and just as we're getting started, I I really like the the new approach that you're taking with this new book called Pick a Fight of recent or releasing it on Audible. And I I was just curious, just as we're getting started, like what made you want to release it in this in this different way? Like what led you to choosing this different path? Yeah, so there's a there was a couple different things here. I mean, the the biggest thing is this realization that um, we we all we we all have we've been saying this idea leaders are readers for you know the longest time, right? What has changed in the last let's say five years is that people are reading with their ears more and more often now, right? Mm-hmm. And especially, I mean, this book is targeted towards leaders and aspiring leaders. And so that's how they want to consume content. The the other thing, I mean, I've I've been a an author for a a traditionally published author for almost a decade. I love my publishing house that I work with all the time and that sort of thing. But there's this tension at the heart of writing 
for a print book, which is that uh, the publishing world and the bookstore world and all that sort of stuff assumes that it's not a book unless it hits a certain length. Right. Mm-hmm. And some of that is just economics of scale. So, some of that is you need the book to be thick enough to print the, the name of the book on the spine. Right. Like, um, and so I've always been pushed and, and you get this criticism. I'm sure you've seen it in, in this whole genre of um, business and nonfiction writing that uh, will say, oh, well, the idea should have been half as length and the rest is just fluff. Well, I didn't want to write the fluff. And so that meant that I probably couldn't work with my traditional publisher. I wanted to get to the core of the idea and I wanted to get it out as fast as possible. Um, That happened to be about 20,000 words. And so print is not the right format for that. So then I looked around for what is the right, um, the right way to get the idea out there with a similar gravitas where it'll be, where it'll be chewed on and considered, but where length and that sort of thing is not an issue. And audio is like the, the way to do that. Now that's the, that's the good reason, you know, every idea, there's the good reason and the real reason. So I'll let you and your listeners know the behind the scenes of real reason too, which is that I've written three books and I've never been invited to narrate my own books. And so part of me was like, forget this. I'm going to, I'm going to sell this. Like I'm going to reach out to audible and I'm going to say, I have, you can have this. I have one condition, which is that I finally get to read my own thing. Um, and thankfully they went for it. So, so yeah, there's a, there was, I mean, 85% the really good reason I just told you, but there was a little, little bit of ego in there too. Mm-hmm. So what, so do are, I'm guessing that you're, you're assuming or even looking into the future that you think most stuff will move online or not online, but into the audible format or what are you thinking with that? I think people are going to have to take it way more seriously. I mean, I, I love print books. I, I consume, you could this, these shelves that you are looking at are my two read shelves, right? Uh, and everybody listening is like, what is he talking about? But I have basically two bookshelves behind me full of books that I need to read. They're all, and I love reading in hardcover. So, I mean, there's that, that's not going away, but I do think what we're seeing now is that the industry and especially authors are taking audio more seriously Whereas before you would just write the book because you're a writer and then you would sell the book to one of basically three companies that would hire a narrator, churn the thing out in audio. And it, I mean, they're, they're dry, they're read often in monotone. They're, they're just meant to be this auxiliary thing, right? Uh, the way, the way eBooks are sort of the, the digital version of that. And I don't think that's true anymore. I mean, uh, Malcolm Gladwell was talking about his newest book, Talking to Strangers has sold more copies in audio than anything else. It's also a delight to listen to an audio. Mm-hmm. Um, James Clear with uh, Atomic Habits, he said the same thing to me the other day that he sold, uh, he's, that book has sold like a million copies, but the vast majority of them have been in audio. We're, we're just seeing that more often. And so I don't, I don't think it's a shift to where print books are going away. We've been saying that for like 30 years and it's always been overrated, but I think you need to take it, um, take it seriously. And I think you need to, one of the things I thought was fascinating about this book was writing it with the knowledge that it's going to be read means the way you even compose a sentence is different, right? And the way that you edit is different because this is the first time I, I, I edited by reading the book out loud multiple times, right? Um, so doing that, I think is, uh, is something that a lot of authors are, are going to have to consider. Interestingly enough, that probably means the average, like the, the Fleischmann score, the reading level, all of that sort of stuff is going to go down because we talk, uh, with shorter, more simple sentences and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I think it's something that also authors have to consider. It's, it's no longer this, um, you just create this audio offshoot of the print. Uh, I think you got to consider both as you compose them at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, so talk about that a little bit more. I'm really interested in, in the process of what did it look, what was different from, from writing a physical, like a hard copy book that you're planning on doing versus the audio uh, only. And you've, you've talked about it a little bit. Can you just talk about it a little bit more? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll also tell you what I wish I would have done. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, the, to me, I look at writing a book as three different phases. There's the research phase, the writing phase, and the editing phase. And, I, and the, of the three, the longest is usually either the research phase or the editing phase. Writing is actually rewriting, in my opinion. Like getting the, the thing out there is the easiest part. Editing it and polishing it is the hardest. So the research phase wasn't all that different, right? Um, I, I, I research everything kind of the same way. Even if I'm writing a longer form article, I, I do that sort of the same way the spitting it out there was a, a little bit different in that um, I didn't have to care about uh, punctuation and all of that sort of stuff as I was going because I knew I'd be able to correct that. The, the biggest thing was um, on the editing process, I couldn't, usually what you do is you send it to two or three different people and you have a copy editor and you have all of these people looking at it. If, if I'm the one narrating this and I'm writing it to be read, then the only thing that matters is how people are hearing me. So I... Uh, basically, as soon as I, the first draft was done and then I edited digitally and then I printed it out, which is again, normal, but usually I print out multiple copies and I give them out to a couple different people and I want to get their feedback. This time around, I printed it out and I had to sit with them and read it out loud and watch their reaction and that sort of stuff. Right. And I, you know, God, God loved the three or four people that were willing to do, <laughs> to do this. Right. Um, but, I, but I had to sort of do that. And, and you, um, you almost find yourself where we would normally play with words. You're also playing with expression. How, what, what tonality am I going to put as I say this sort of thing, right? Like, um, whereas before I would just have to do that on the page. So it's the editing process that really became different. And a lot of, as it happened, a lot of sentences got shorter. Some stuff stayed the same, but I, I found myself taking notes on how to say certain things, like where I needed long pauses and where I needed to get louder and that sort of thing, which was really kind of uh, interesting and and again a, a lot of fun. Um, and I think you know, I there are several authors that I admire that say that that reading out loud is part of their editing process altogether. Um, so I wish uh, I wish I would have done that sooner for even my books that were meant to be read. Uh, or yeah, meant to be read with your eyes instead yeah. of your ears. Um, the one thing I wish I would have done is I wish I would have done all of my interviews for this book and recorded them and used something like what we're doing now so that I had good quality audio from everybody. Um, I sort of, tr I got the idea halfway through that I should just, that way I could use their direct quote of the audio file and just insert it in. Um, and I got that idea about halfway through and the quality differences <laughs> between interviews were so vast that it was just like, I can't do this. I'm better off just reading each quote. Um, but I wish I wouldn't have had to, I wish I would have been able to use live quotes from people. Mm -hmm. Well, that's for the next book then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, Hey, you, this book that we've been uh, kind of dancing around a little bit is called pick a fight. And I'm always interested because I'm um, at least in my experience, whenever it comes to creating content, like the origin of it is always some of the stuff that you're seeing, you know, around you, whether that be in culture or in your own life. And then part of it is personal um, as well for, for a good bit of it. And so I'm just interested, like where, where did the idea of pick a fight start for you and how did it come to fruition? Yeah. So I, um, I've written a couple different books that on their surface seem like they're about various different things, right? So uh, a book on creativity, a book on management practices and policies, and a book on networking. Um, but at their core, they're actually all about the same thing, which is teams and people, right? It's how do teams operate to be more creative? How do teams operate in, in the new world of work? And even the second half of the networking book is on the network of the organization. So how do teams form and all that sort of stuff. And that kind of got me thinking about just teams in general. There's a lot of like, surface level, really corny team building books out there that I, I don't think are all that good. 
Um, and there's a few that are fantastic. Like Daniel Coyle's The Culture Code is a fantastic mm-hmm. book about teams. But it really got me thinking about, especially um, what is it that actually bonds and motivates teams more than each other? And one of the things that I found is that that very few people were talking about is that outside threats, outside adversity, um, threats to a community, even when there's divisiveness in the community, are a huge and immediately motivating factor. The, the, the term in, um, in organizational behavior literature is superordinate goals. When there is a goal that is so large that it requires uh, interaction between multiple communities or multiple groups, and, and not achieving that goal threatens or harms all of those groups in some way, you end up with people more bonded than ever. And you know, I, I was not, I was not planning this at at all because I don't think anyone was. But we're we're watching that in real time as we're recording this. This is sort of day four, day five of most of the United States being sort of social distance, lockdown, mm-hmm. et cetera. On the other hand, we have never seen the world working together on one thing uh, ever. Really, yeah. usually it's different sides. Like the world wars, even were two sides of the world working against each other. This is the entire world working on one situation, and the the pace of solutions and innovations and uh, all of it has been fantastic. I mean, I mean, even even in the United States where you and I are, like the the other day, the governor of uh, New York, Andrew Cuomo, complimented Donald Trump and his action, right? And 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 tr- I'm pretty sure Trump reciprocated. Like, and these are people that are at each other's throats most of the time, tweet tweeting and subtweeting each other angrily all the time. And you know, I, I think we, we we're still learning. You know, it's it's still a little polarized. We're still learning how to interact with each other, but we got to it way faster than anyone would have thought. And so, uh, seeing all of that, right? Um, and it, what's weird is seeing it through this lens as well. That's what kind of got me started. Originally, it was going to be about that outside adversity piece, um, but then we we move uh, we shifted towards this idea of fight. Um, because I, I want to rebrand this term fight. It's not about fighting against competitors or, or that. So it's not about fighting for market share. People want to know they're fighting for something bigger. Um, and we talk a lot about purpose. And so I started to see these two things merge. We talk a lot about why we need purpose and sense of mission and meaning in work. Um, but we use very vague generic terms like purpose and, and meaning. And so I wanted to cut through all of that clutter and just say, here's the litmus test for whether or not your people have a sense of purpose. If I walked into your office and I asked your people, what are you fighting for? If they can give me a clear and concise answer to that question, then you have a purpose-driven culture. And if they can't, then there's some things we need to rework. Mm-hmm. So as we've talked about, the, the idea is pick a fight. And I'm just thinking of the person who's listening right now. And especially... Um, you can, I think sometimes we can get bogged down on, well, there's so many options and everything. So how, how do you recommend that someone pick, like, what's the right fight to pick? Yeah. So no, that's great because, it, and, and there's a reason we called it pick a fight as opposed to a bunch of other things we could use. Cause it's not just that you have to pick a fight. It's also that you have to choose which fight wisely. Mm-hmm. And for the, for the sake of, of ease of remembering, there's basically three that we know from research and human behavior will actually have that motivating effect. And none of the three are a fight against a rival company, right? We already talked about that. And um, it, it's, it's a bad idea, not only because of the superordinate goals piece, but it's a bad idea because your people are probably going to, some of them are going to go work for competitors one day, right? Uh, at the very least, I can say with confidence that the world being what it is, your employees are friends with employees at competitive companies. And so when you're asking them, when you're using this fight language against competitors, it doesn't work. We just know that. But there's a larger purpose that we can still use that rhetoric for. The three fights really quick are the revolutionary fight, the underdog fight, and the ally fight. 
Um, and they all leverage a little bit different aspect of human behavior. The revolutionary fight is really about correcting an injustice or changing a set of norms. It's about changing the status quo. It's when the industry says such and such is acceptable. And when you as a team or as an organization say, we refuse to accept that, right? We're going to do things differently because it's better for the community, for the environment, it, because it's outdated, whatever it is. It's that idea that there's something in the industry that needs to be changed and we're working to change it. The underdog fight is, is more about how the industry perceives you as a company. When you are getting criticism for being too small or being underrated or being so different that they don't know how to process what you're actually doing, you have the beginning of the underdog fight. But crucially, you don't just need to get rejection from an industry or community. You also need a rebuttal. You need to be able to prove why they're wrong and leverage that. It's, more, it's, it's not about just we're small. It's about we're going to prove the haters wrong. And, and my, personally, I love this because I was born in Philadelphia and we're like the city of underdogs, right? So this is my preferred fight. Um, but I always go back to this example of Rocky. I mean, Rocky. So Philadelphia's greatest sports hero is a fictional character who lost a boxing match. That was Rocky one, right? Fictional character lost a boxing match. But if you remember in the movie, he tells Adrian like midway through the movie, I don't want to win. I don't care about winning. I want to go the distance with Apollo Creed. I want to prove to people that I'm not a bum. And his definition wasn't winning. His definition was if I can go the distance, I have proven that I am not a bum because nobody had gone the distance with it, right? Um, so that's the underdog fight. And then the very last one is the ally fight, which is to say that it's not about our fight at all. It's about our customer or some stakeholders fight. And we, by continuing to exist, are helping them win that fight. And what's crucial here is if you're going to leverage that fight, you need to build systems and, and find ways to capture those stories and bring them back to their people. Because a lot of organizations fall into this ally fight, but forget that it's only really the people on the front lines interacting with that stakeholder, that customer, that get to see that benefit. A lot of other people don't. And so you need to find a way to make sure everybody knows that we're in this together with that ally community. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's such, like, why do you think we tend to focus so much on our competitors and not that like super oriented, like cause that you were talking about? Yeah. I mean, candidly, I was a business school professor for almost a decade. And I think that's a lot of the reason to blame. We, we choose metrics uh, and ways to succeed that are very competitor driven, right? So um, when I started in, in business life, before I went back to graduate school, I worked in an in industry, I worked in a sales organization. Market share was all we ever talked about, right? Which is, no, I mean, nobody talked about growing the market, which is always weird, right? We just made this assumption that the pie was always going to stay the same and that we needed a fight for, for every percentage point of market share. And it probably would have been a better idea to grow the pie, but that's a whole other monologue, right? So we have that, or even if we're using revenue numbers, how do we know our revenue numbers are good? We look to those competitors. It's, it's really, um, I mean, it's easy to do. We, we are very tempted by this us-them mentality a lot of times, um, but what we don't get is that when we, that us-them ceases to exist as soon as there's another them, or as soon as there's a really compelling that, right? So, you know, again, I mean, we see this, this, this uh, pandemic is a great example of, of what happens, but we see it even in, in wars and that sort of thing. We, we as the United States are a very polarized country, but if we were attacked, we would come together. We saw that on September 11th and we're starting to see it now. It I think it takes a little longer um, in things like this, but we're starting to see it now. As soon as there's this compelling bigger thing, um, it, it, we all get focused on that. And, and the lack of that compelling thing, right? The lack of fighting for a superordinate goal 
is what a lot of times left to our own devices with no bigger purpose like that, that's when we start to get into this little us versus them silos, politics, and turf war. In fact, if you look at companies, for example, you almost always see that that politics and turf wars thing happen in an organization that doesn't have a clear and compelling sense of purpose, right? And an organization that does, they don't have time for that. So it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. So we, we've talked some of what it looks like organizationally. What, what does this look like on like a per, like on a personal basis, like for, for the, for the employee or for the person who's trying to figure this out? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great question. And we should talk about it. Actually, we should actually talk about it in two contexts, right? Cause it, there's obviously it's easy to look at this as like, this is the senior leader's job. This is the CEO job. She sets the fight for the whole organization. And that's great. I agree. Uh, but if you don't have one of those situations, or even if you do, it's incumbent on a team leader to do this for his or her team. And it's incumbent on an individual to do it as well. Um, the big thing I would say is it is if you're inside an organization looking at that larger fight, it's not so much uh, at that point um, about what you think the vision should be as a leader. It's about what resonates most with your people, right? So um, I work with a lot of organizations where when you talk to the senior leadership team, they think their fight is X. And then you go out and you talk with the people and they, they actually, you find that this story would resonate better. And you have to go back to them and explain to the leaders, like, mm, that's not what works with people. And there's a, this is a big thing worth correcting because there's so much out there in the literature for leaders about casting a vision, right? About getting buy-in to the strategic plan. It's not actually about that. It's about figuring out what the vision on your people already is and finding a way to put that to words. I just happen to believe that word, those words fall into one of three fights. So as a team leader, you have to do the same thing. You got to survey your people and see which one resonates most. And then your job becomes the curator of the story. So it's not to remind people what the fight is. It's to find those stories that prove they're fighting the right fight. So stories about how the industry is taking advantage of people if you're the revolution, right? Or stories about how we're helping the ally by working if you're the the ally fight. For an individual, I think we have to take a deep look at ourselves and look at two things in particular about our job that we often overlook. The first is the specific tasks, right? We, I talk about when I was teaching organizational behavior, one of the things we teach in like week two is that fundamentally a job is just a bundle of tasks. We, we think that the building block of an organization is the job, right? Because it's the box on the org chart. But the truth is the job is broken up sort of like an atom, right? When you can split the job, like you can split an atom and it's full of lots of littler stuff. And those are tasks. And some of those tasks are really resonate with you and some of them don't. And so you have to decide which of these um, are, are drawing meaning to you. And they probably do for one of those same three reasons, revolution or underdog or or ally fight, and then find a way. Sometimes it's a, it's a matter of finding a way to spend less time on the tasks that don't or, or find someone else who resonates with them a little bit differently. The, the term for that is actually job crafting or task crafting. Um, and sometimes it's about just a little bit of a cognitive reframe. Sometimes it's, it's you can't change the tasks at all, but you need to start looking at who you doing your job helps, right? We, we tend to think that customers are only external to the organization, but it's not true. Most of us inside the organization have customers because we have, we have team members who can only do their work if we do our work well. So that might be the ally fight for you, right? So it takes that in, introspection of looking at all the tasks that you do and their relationship to the tasks other people are doing. And usually you'll find one of those templates. Either you're going to be doing the job a little bit differently and better than other people in the organization, and that's a bit of a revolution, or you're going to think about how um, other people are, are benefit tremendously from you doing a great job. That's a little bit of the ally fight. And, if, and of course, if you're one of, especially if you're one of the younger or um, less tenured members of the organization, the underdog fight can work for a time. I will say, remember that the underdog fight isn't about always proving the haters wrong and keeping them haters. 
It's about proving them wrong so that they respect you and now you can work uh, better together. So don't let the underdog fight turn into this little politics thing inside. But all three of them can be leveraged as an individual when you look at the tasks that you're doing and the relationship your job has to the other jobs in the organization. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think someone should go about deciding whether or not that they should continue to, to support the, the fight that they're currently in versus, hey, it might be time to move on to another fight or like you've discovered something in, in, like your, own, in your own life that you're like, I don't see anyone fighting this fight. Like how, what would your advice be to that person? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's a matter of emotion. Right. So, so there's a couple of things here. The, the first question I'm hearing is, is can you change your fight? Right. Um, can you find that it's no longer? And, and in some cases you can, right. Rocky, Rocky beat Apollo Creed in, in, in uh, Rocky two. Right. So, so when you're the underdog, sometimes you can prove the system was wrong and that they should have accepted you. And if that's the case, yeah, then the underdog fight doesn't necessarily work for you. Although there, there are, there are situations where you can still leverage them. Um, Nick Saban, for example, at university of Alabama, which is almost never an underdog when it plays football, uh, still finds a, a makes it a point to find the articles and commentary that's calling his team overrated and feed that to his players, right? To, so you could still be in that position. Um, I, I think so. I think it's a question of intensity of emotion. When that intensity of emotion is no longer there from the same stories, that's a really good question. Now, for uh, that's at an individual level. For an organizational level, it's really a question of did you win the fight or not, right? If you're if you're in a revolution, then by definition, you're trying to transform the industry. That will probably not happen in the life cycle of your organization, but you will make progress throughout the life cycle of your organization. If it ever does, then yeah, it's probably time to move, probably time to change. Um, the uh, same thing with the ally fight. There, there's a really good chance that it, you won't actually finish the, the fight in the life cycle of your organization. But if you do, that's a really good um, time. So that, that's really the question. I think... Um, I think the biggest thing is we often feel like we need to change our fight because there is some overlap between these three. Uh, but, but the truth is, it's about that intensity of emotion piece to your people too. Which of the three is most resonating? You could probably, with the exception of maybe the ally fight, you could find a way to phrase most of, uh, most of these three in each template. The question is, which one resonates most with your people on an intensity of emotion scale? So if that's not serving you, it might be time to reframe, but please because we do this too often with mission statements and other corporate endeavors, please don't change every 18 months just because you're bored, right? Um, If I've learned anything, it's that you don't change a company culture in 18 months, right? This is a years and years long process uh, of thinking through. And so please don't change it that fast. But I think you can look at some of that intensity of emotion piece and make some judgments there. Mm -hmm. What have you seen and what have have you learned about fighting a fight that that won't be one in your lifetime. Like what, what can you do well in order to keep the fight going and even remain encouraged? Yeah, well, I mean, again, it's about progress, right? And we know that progress is a huge human motivator. Um, and so as a, as a leader, it's incumbent on you to point out the progress. So, I mean, like I'll give you an example, right? One of my favorite companies, and they're actually not in the book because they're in stuff that we'll talk about a couple years from now because I've got this grand plan to get this fight to scale. <laughs> Um, one of my favorite companies is a company called Pila. They make cell phone cases, um, and, and sunglasses, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, but interestingly, they make sun cell phone cases out of biomaterial. They make it out of leftover materials from farming. They found a way to take husks from corn and soy and turn them into a moldable plastic. And what that means is that their cell phone cases biodegrade inside of 10 years. 
And so they're taking on a whole industry of consumer goods that says using plastics derived from petrochemicals is fine. It's the cost of doing business. It's, it's not great, but it's what we have to do because the other stuff would be more expensive. No, they can find a way to do it at the exact same cost. And so for them, the revolution is the entire industry says this is acceptable. We refuse to accept that. We're fighting for a waste-free future. Now, if you know anything about human consumerism, you know that most of the people, the people who currently work for Pila are not going to change human consumerism in their lifetime. But there's a tremendous amount of progress that you can make, right? Every case sold is progress, but then there's a larger, then market share means more than just we're making more money. Market share means we're making progress on this waste-free future thing, right? Um, what I love about them is their mission and vision, that sense of what we're fighting for is so vital that when they decided to expand into their second product, they didn't make some other um, technology auxiliary thing, right? Like every strategy book out there would tell you to go into a close adjacent category. Like you made a cell phone case, now make a tablet case. They didn't do that. They looked at what's the next most thrown away thing. Well, people buy sunglasses in the, in the spring and lose them by fall. So let's go after that. So now they're making sun, which you've no, all of your distribution is to get into the Apple store and Best Buy and whatever. And now you're trying to get into department stores but it, that's the fight, right? And so it, it was almost a way of proving this is how serious we are about it. So, you know, are, are they going to transform the entire industry to stop using petrochemicals to make plastics? No, but they are going to be able to see, see their progress and their, their company growth, even their profitability and yeah, their market, all of that means something much more important now because it shows progress towards that fight. And that's what matters. Mm -hmm. So for the, for the person who is, you know, hearing this, what, what prep work would you suggest that they do before they start their fight? Yeah. So uh, again, it depends on whether or not we're talking about you're a senior leader or a team leader, or you're the individual. If you're the senior leader, I think the most like the quick and dirty, easiest thing you can do as prep work is to get a cross section of your people or even all your people. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, ask them all two really simple questions. What do we do here? And how does what you do help us do that? right? And you're not doing this in an antagonistic way, like a quiz. And if you get the answer wrong, you're fired or something like that. You're, you're looking for how do they currently frame what it is the company is about, right? And though you, the language that, and, and also how their role helps that. And the language that they use will probably skew towards their, what that company does in relation to the industry, what it does in relation to customers, or what it does in relation to how that industry is perceived or something like that, like how they are compared to competitors, right? Well, that's a really strong indication that, that can lean you towards one of these three, right? If they talk about the relationship to the industry, that's a strong sign that the revolutionary fight is going to resonate the most. If they talk about customers or some other stakeholder that benefits, that's a strong sign about the ally fight. So that, that to me is the, the, the way to do that sort of prep work. Uh, on the individual level, I think, it, it, again, it comes back down to those tasks and really studying out of, it's not just your job, study over the course of a week, every single task that you have to do as part of your job and start asking which ones energize you and which ones don't, and then get into the deeper reason that they do. And that'll help you tease out this idea of finding a personal fight. Mm -hmm. Well, your book again is pick a fight and, uh, and super encouraging everybody to check that out. Um, I want to ask a couple other, uh, non-related questions that I'm just curious about, cause I know that you're a big learner and want to pick your brain on <laughs> yeah, some stuff as well. We'll stop what? picking a fight. We'll start picking brains. I love it. Yeah, definitely. Um, what would have been some, some books or some podcasts or courses or really anything that you've been learning recently from that has just radically challenged your thinking? Yeah. Um, so there's a book that it just came out. Um, 
last week or week before. And it's a, it's a really interesting one. So I, and I saw this when we were in video chat over your shoulder that you have all of the Heath brothers books. I saw decisive. (laughs) I saw all of those, but the new one, right. That is only from Dan, which is really like at first, that was my first reason. Like, Oh, that's interesting. It's just Dan. It's not Dan and chip Um, called upstream has been really sort of um, challenging a lot of my thinking because Dan, I mean, Dan's basic idea is that we are really great at solving reactionary problems and really bad. I mean, it, it, basically the book is about in, in academia, we would call it systems thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically the, the book is about thinking, how do we move upstream and solve the problem, make it so those problems don't happen. And that's something that we as society never reward. Like the example he gives is sort of like crime right? We, we reward policemen when they, ca- not re- that sounds grotesque, but you know what I mean? We can yeah. track and measure number of arrests and all that sort of stuff. What we can't track is that policeman stood on the street corner for four hours and interacted with the community. And as a result, crime in that area lowered and the overall perception of police lowered. We have no way to track that. That's upstream work. And so we don't reward it. And that was, has been really getting me to rethink a lot of different things about where are we just rewarding downstream reactionary things where we should actually be finding a way to capture um, these upstream things. It's been, it's been a, so that book is really, I won't say it like rocked my thinking, but it's given me a lot to chew on. Yeah. And then uh, I won't hold you to this in the future, but what, what are three books that have shaped you um, either or the ideas into who you are today. I'm not asking for these are the only three books. I'm just saying, what are yeah. three books? Did I answer? Did I? Answer, I don't remember what I answered last time, right? So this will be really curious. <laughs> um, okay, so I, some of them are about the idea, and some of them are about the experience. And I'm probably only going to give you two, um, okay. to be fair. So uh, shape my thinking the most is probably Roger Martin's The Opposable Mind which I probably did say the last time I was here, if you asked me this question, um, which is a book about how we so often look at models as choices, as either or choices that we have to make. So in, in uh, again, I was a business school professor. The big question in strategy is, uh, do you want to be low cost or do you want to be uh, a, a um, oh, differentiation, right? Do you want to go after a niche and provide high value? And as a result, you don't have to lower your costs, right? Um, However, there are some companies that thrive because they're both. They found a way to really dramatically lower cost, but not sacrifice that thing, right? So, so often these trade-offs that we think we have to make, we don't actually have to make. And so the book is basically about how leaders develop an opposable mind or what he sometimes calls integrative thinking, that you can integrate these two different business models. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably a big one. Then the other one that's really influenced my, my life and career isn't because of what it is, but it'd be Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point. Um, I actually reread it now and I think, nah, you know, it's okay. The, the problem with writing about science, I've learned this in my own personal experience, is science changes and we find new discoveries. And there, my first book came out in 2013 and I wish I could rewrite it because there's stuff that we've discovered since then that change a little bit of what I would do. So I feel that way about it. But what I will say is that book came out when I was in um, on my undergraduate years in college and really steered me on like, wow, this is fascinating. I, was, I came into college as an English major and I left as a social scientist because of that book with the idea of, I want to write about this. I never said I want to go to university and do academic research that gets read by 15 people or whatever. I said, I want to use storytelling mixed with science to actually come up with ideas that help people live better lives or do better work or that sort of thing. So, you know, that one didn't really change my thinking, but I had no idea that genre even existed before I read that book and set me on the path that I've been on today. Mm -hmm. What are you most excited about right now? Uh, what, what I'm most, I I think I actually already said it, um, which is weird. We're in the midst of this thing that a lot of people are really scared about. And I totally get that. 
But what I'm most excited about is I get to live through this moment that has never happened in 10,000 years of recorded human history or more, give or take like 5,000 years. I really don't know. Um, but we have never seen the entire planet work collaboratively together against something or, or work collaboratively together for something. And it's amazing to watch. And so I'm, I'm excited about it, but I'm also um, in the midst, I'm trying to remind myself of that in the midst of this crazy storm, how amazing it is that I get to watch humans coordinate in responding to that storm, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, David, your book is incredible. It's very thought provoking as well. So where, where's the best place for them to go to pick that up? And then uh, where, where can people continue to follow you and learn from you as well? Yeah. So I mean, just search pick a fight on wherever you get audiobooks. So it's, we, we did the whole thing in partnership with audible, but they have released it to iBooks and, and, um, anywhere else where you get in audio. If you, if you really are one of those people, by the way, that really, uh, likes to read with your eyes, like, you know, I mean, that's so outdated. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I mean, I'm making the assumption since you're listening to this, that you love podcasts. So you love audiobooks too. But if you like to read with your eyes, grab the book and send the receipt to bonus at davidberkus.com and I will mail you an ebook version of it that you can load on your Kindle or iPad or whatever to read with your eyes. I'm happy to do that for you. You really should listen to it in audio though because I tried really, really hard on that. So um, that would be, and that davidberkus.com URL is also the best place to get a hold of me. So that would be, uh, yeah, that'd be my encouragement. Awesome. Well, thanks again for being on the podcast, David. Man, thank you so much for having me back. David, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and get to pick your brain about some of the new things that you're learning and what you're writing about as well. And I really enjoyed reading Pick a Fight as well. So thanks so much for being on the podcast. As I want to remind you that we'll be releasing some more podcasts we'll be having in Everyday uh, Hope coming up later this week. We'll be, uh, of course, releasing the recommend my recommendations and random thoughts this week as well. Also, I want to remind you that the music that you're listening to is brought to you by my good friend, Sam Massey, and to hit him up for any work that you may have this time. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the podcast. Stay safe and keep learning and keep growing.